This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. It's time for our weekly news recap. That's where we dig deeper into the biggest local headlines of the week. President Joe Biden is making a trip to Chicago today. He is one of several high-profile politicians traveling to our area in the days leading up to the election. Police say a man, Scott Lennox, called State Senator Darren Bailey's Springfield office and left a death threat voicemail. Illinois residents have been receiving newspapers they have not paid for or in many cases even heard of before. The State Board of Elections has warned of a text message disinformation campaign aiming to sow confusion about Election Day polling places. So many stories to dive into, so let's get started. Joining us today is Carrie Shepard, lead producer of CityCast Chicago. That's a daily podcast and newsletter about all things Chicago. Hey, Carrie, welcome back. Hey, Sasha, thank you. Also with us, Chicago Sun-Times Washington Bureau Chief Lynn Sweet. Great to have you back, Lynn. Thanks for having me. And joining us for the very first time on the weekly news recap is Alex Degman, State House reporter for WBEZ. Welcome. Hello. Remember that you can now watch the weekly news recap live on the WBEZ YouTube and Facebook pages. So we're going to start right away with state politics, folks. With just days left until Tuesday's midterm, the Illinois State Board of Elections issued a warning about a text message voter disinformation campaign. Sounds complicated, Alex. What is this about? So... I started hearing about this uh, probably a few days ago. People were sending me text messages like, do you know anything about this? Look at, look at what this is. So I looked at it, and the couple of texts that I saw were actual pictures of polling places, and they addressed the person by name, the people who were doing the texting. They addressed them by name. Mm-hmm. They knew their address, and they gave their polling place, but I immediately noticed that the Springfield polling place that they were looking at was wrong. Like, even I knew that, just not even by looking at a map. So... I started looking around like, who's doing this? What is, what's going on behind this? So it turns out that there was a company behind this, and they apparently realized pretty quickly that this was a mistake. It's called mm-hmm. Movement Labs. Uh, they've been around for a little while. They used to be called Resistance Labs, and they contract with groups to do get-out-the-vote efforts. They contracted with Voto Latino, uh, Black Voters Matter, and Voting Futures. The text from Voting Futures were the ones that I saw. And they were going to encourage in-person early voting, and they sent an unknown number of voters. These we, we don't know how many texts went out, went to Illinois and a few other states. But they didn't mention that the polling places that they showed were early voting locations or uh, Dropbox spots. So was not, this deliberate, or did it seem more like a mistake? They say it wasn't deliberate. Movement Lab says it wasn't deliberate, but they realized that it sowed confusion. And they promised in a statement to make sure that everybody who got a text gets their correct polling place information, their election day polling place information. I see. Well, Lynn, we're going to stick with the the topic of disinformation here and misinformation. Quite a few voters have been receiving something called the Chicago City Wire, right, and other fake newspapers in their mailboxes. I know you've been reporting on this as well. So catch us up here. Some listeners have also heard our coverage here, but what's what's the deal? So these papers are, f- are finally just getting their, um, their the attention I think they deserve and the reason why is is that they are flooding the mailboxes of voters across Illinois just days before the election where they might have been ignored uh, a month ago. So these papers are paid for by a company whose funding we do not know. But we know that the when you connect the dots, they go back to three people. Dan Proft, who also runs the People Who Play by the Rules pack, mm-hmm. which is backed by mega donor, Republican mega donor Dick Uline. So the content of the papers are purported to be local. But when you look at the so so there's a bunch of local content in there. 
it is slanted against Pritzker. But the papers also justify what they are as claiming to be local, such as that's why you have local titles, South Cook News, mm-hmm. the Lake County Gazette, et cetera. But there is no local news in it. They have some pictures of athletes on the back without any, you know, with no yeah. no coverage even of, uh, of uh, high school sports. So it is uh, it is political messaging packaged in a newspaper. It isn't so much of whether one story or one fact or one assertion is right or wrong, and that's what I want to make clear. That's not what's at issue. It's this, that this is partisan political messaging packaged yeah. as a paper, which means it escapes some of the disclosure rules that political action committees mm-hmm. have to follow. Well, you mentioned Dan Proft, right? In an interview with News Nation's On Balance anchor Leland Viterd, Proft, the Republican operative who's behind these, as you mentioned, he responded to accusations that he was distributing fake news. Let's listen. How is this not the epitome or definition of fake news? Uh, because nothing in the newspapers is inaccurate. And we've challenged Governor Pritzker and everybody else on the left who's to cry the newspapers to just point to one single story that is inaccurate, that's factually untrue, that c- contains material misinformation. They don't like the angle that we're taking on particular stories that we cover and the choices, the editorial choices we're making on stories. Uh, but that's very different than saying that anything is inaccurate. Lynn, your thoughts? Well, that's why I don't use the term fake news, because what's at issue is political messaging. So I, I think it's a, raising that argument, which, which the paper does too, we challenge you to find anything. That, that's not the question. Okay. Uh, the question is whether or not these papers are masquerading. These are political messages masquerading as a paper. So you see that's a quite – he – Dan and his allies are answering a question and putting out a challenge to something that really isn't the issue here. Now, I know some of their stories have not survived fact checks, but that, in a sense, is another issue and and probably not as important a question are of to inform our readers and our listeners here. If you want to know what it is that you're getting in your mailbox, it is political messaging paid for yeah. by partisans. Have you received any of these papers, Carrie? I have not. I have picked them up when I've seen them just to check out the messaging, as Lynn notes. Mm-hmm. And they the messaging is just like any sort of flyer you're getting right now from the Democratic Party or Republican Party telling you how to fill out your ballot. Yeah. I would say um, I think some some voters are going to be surprised Dan Prof's name is not on the ballot. Do you similar... think the average voter understands what they're looking at? No, I do not. I, d- I don't. No, I don't think they do. And I, I would say, you know, Lynn makes a good point. It's more about, you know, it's less the content. It's more like this is polit- political messaging. This is not reporting. Yeah. But... In, and maybe he's saying, if you fact check, this is anything wrong. We do know that Dan Prof's pact puts out at least misleading information about the election. And this is, you know, we've been hearing his name so much. I'll be ready not to say his name anymore, <laughs> frankly, after the midterm, um, just because he's been he's just been so involved this time around, as Ken Griffin was in the primary. I think that's precisely how he wanted it, though. Exactly. Of course. Lynn, Bronzeville voters, they've been receiving flyers that Third Ward Alderman Pat Dowell is calling a, quote, subliminal form of voter suppression. 
What is this about? So this, again, goes back to uh, Dan Prof and the people who play by the rules pack because this is pure political messaging and it's labeled as such. So we know who puts it out. We also have signs in the west side of Chicago. So the the messaging here is just to punish Governor Pritzker. But it doesn't tell you the flip side then before Darren Bailey. Mm-hmm. And that's why the analysis is then what is this trying to do? Because this late in the game, you uh, want to suggest then who do you vote for? The other thing is these are heavily Democratic uh, neighborhoods. The Democratic ticket in order to, to win needs every constituency, every base to turn out in really heavy numbers on Tuesday. And certainly the black vote, in particular the black female vote, is crucial part of the Democratic coalition. So the analysis is this, this using the multiple platforms that Proft has, because he has similar messaging going out in, in ads, uh, that the analysis is this is trying to discourage people from voting for Governor Pritzker. Alex, lawmakers across the country, they've been expressing concerns about safety. This is after the attack on Nancy Pelosi's husband. Here in Illinois, a Chicago man was also charged with uh, leaving threatening messages for Republican candidate for governor, Darren Bailey. What are the details here? So if we are to believe what happened during the plea hearing this week, uh, this was also we've been talking about political messaging. This is the result of that. Uh, The Chicago man who is accused of this, uh, he says that he was at a bar with some friends when a political ad came on TV and he had been seeing this particular ad and a lot of others and he was angry. He was angry at it. He snapped and he started yelling at his friends and he left the bar and allegedly called the office, the Springfield office of State Senator Darren Bailey. Um, He just said just some really, really nasty things and I'm not going to – I'm not going to repeat most of it, but just basically he threatened to do things like mutilate, kill, you know, mm. stuff like that. Just yeah. re- really nasty stuff. That's so alarming. so he faces three felony charges. Scott Lennox does, the 21-year-old Chicago man. Um, he 21? Yeah, he's 21 years old, and he faces three felonies. So Bailey's campaign in a statement, he responded by saying that he hopes Lennox gets the help he needs and that we're all Americans despite all of our differences. And J.B. Pritzker's campaign also responded, tweeting that this obviously that this kind of political uh, violence is not acceptable and hatred, quote, hatred in any form has no home here. Did he leave his name on the on the threats or how I mean, how how do they know it's him? Basically, the uh, the uh, the FBI tracked him down because he left the voicemail from his cell phone. So he called Darren Bailey's Springfield office from his cell phone. They were able to track it down that way. How alarmed, Lynn, are politicians in D.C., just in the aftermath of, of what happened to Paul Pelosi? Well, we're, we're talking about members of Congress here. And I think the real uh, concern about security started with the uh, shooting of Gabby Gifford years ago yeah. when she was doing a Congress on your corner uh, in a place near her Tucson, Arizona, congressional district. Mm-hmm. So there has been stepped up concerns uh, through the years, yeah. there is a stepped-up concern among members of Congress after January 6th. Mm. There have been some rule changes, I think, that now, I think, allows some uh, political uh, elected officials to use some of their uh, political funds for s- some added security. Mm. Um, and there has been, I believe, uh, some changes made in 
being able to use what they call your your member allowance for security enhancement. So any incident heightens concerns a member of Congress because these offices are basically uh, vulnerable. What I have found, though, is that local police are happy to uh, provide some supplemental attention, but they're not 24-hour bodyguards. I mean, I cover member of Congress uh, members in the Chicago area, and they just walk around uh, without security. Yeah, the uh, leaders have security, but the people in the top uh, leadership don't. But rank and file does not. This kind of incident could um, increase a conversation about that. Alex, uh, the president talked about the fragility of democracy in a speech Wednesday night. Um, Earlier that day, though, a member of the nationalist Proud Boys from Aurora pleaded guilty to his role in the January 6th attack. What were the charges and and what sort of sentencing is he facing? So 25-year-old James Robert Elliott, he is reportedly the only Illinois Proud Boys member that's been charged in connection with the Capitol riots so far. He faces... um, Let's see. He he faces. Um, he, well, he he's admitted that he's a proud boy. He faces the biggest punishment. He's pleaded guilty to uh, assaulting, resisting, or impeding certain officers. Now that is, if convicted, that could carry a three to four year sentence, yeah. and that's longer than anyone's been sentenced so far. So what happened was um, the FBI says that when the day started, when everything at the Capitol got going. He was wearing all black and carrying an American flag that said, we the people. It had a couple of other phrases on it, I think. And even after the police officers tried to use tear gas and other riot control things to disperse people, he kept calling out this battle cry. And it's, it's like you might, have heard, you might have heard something like this in the movie 300. Yeah. Like it's, it's that kind of a battle cry. So he, they allege, the prosecutors allege that that's when he started swinging his flagpole toward officers and – that's when the rioters tried to break through the barrier. And what I think what ultimately led to this uh, potential charge is that he was bragging about it. Yeah, He bragged about it in text messages and saying things like he bonked two cops, LOL, like, you know, things like that. And he admitted on Wednesday that he is a proud boy. So um, so that's that. Are. He's one of 32 Illinois residents charged so far. Is he, I mean, more than just a member of the Proud Boys, is, wasn't he the head of the Northern Illinois chapter or something? I thought I saw in the Sun-Times. Or... One, yeah, one of, the, uh, one, of the ra- one of the ways that they were able to connect him to the Proud Boys was because of that connection to the right. leader of the Northern Illinois group because Got they it. spotted him with him. Mm. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap with Chicago Sun-Times Washington Bureau Chief Lynn Sweet, WBEZ State House reporter Alex Degman, and Carrie Shepard from CityCast Chicago. And a reminder, if you're watching online on the WBEZ Facebook or YouTube pages, you can leave us a comment or question in that chat box, and I just may read what you have to say about these stories on the air. So let's do a rapid-fire roundup of races throughout the state, shall we, folks? Looking at you, Alex, where are we in the race to replace longtime Secretary of State Jesse White? I'm kind of surprised but not that Jesse White is retiring because yeah. I thought he was going to retire like 15 years. At least that's what he told me when I first started reporting on the state. So it is for real. He is retiring. Uh, Alexi Janulius. <laughs> it is for is, real. <laughs> it, it's for real this time. Um, he's trying to make a political comeback. Alexi Janulius. He's the Democrat that was elected state treasurer back in 07. He was 30. And he ran for U.S. Senate in 2010. He lost. Um, his family's bank failed. And it, it kind of got all tied together. And he never really came back from that until now. And he's been consistently so far polling ahead of his Republican opponent, that's Dan Brady. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's a state representative. And Janulius, 
Well, he talks about his experience laying out budgets, running a statewide office. Brady is building consensus during all the years he's been a state rep, and he is talking a lot about the need to modernize a lot of issues with the Secretary of State's office, mainly at the DMV. And there's also a third person running in this race, a libertarian by the name of John Stewart. Uh, John Stewart spelled like the famous comedian, exactly the same way. Um, he's a former professional wrestler from Deerfield. Um, the Sun-Times says he wasn't going to run until the libertarians who they were originally going to put up there, a man named Jesse White, um, he was reportedly he, – he says he was bullied off the ballot by Janulius's lawyers. Oh uh, Janulius's lawyers deny that. But they said that they were going to mount some pretty expensive challenges to a man named Jesse White running for secretary of state. Okay. Well, Lynn, what is happening in Illinois' 6th congressional district? So this is the big district uh, where the race is tightening between Representative Sean Caston and Orland Park Mayor Keith Pekow. Yeah. So as we speak on Friday, the uh, leader of the House Republicans, Kevin Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy, is coming in to do an event for Mayor Pekow. But President Biden is coming to Chicago where he will be making an uh, and he will be doing an event Friday night right. with the suburban representatives, the Democratic incumbents, including an event for Kasten. Uh, that is also Representative Lauren Underwood from the 14th Congressional District and Bill Foster from the 11th. Uh, the races are seen as tightening there. Mm -hmm. There is uh, outside money, an enormous amount, going into the 6th Congressional District in these closing days. $1.8 million from the Congressional Leadership Fund, which is the House Republican-allied fund. So this is a district that was redrawn by Democrats to be Democratic, mm. but they yeah. probably didn't put enough Democratic Democrats in it. And if there is a red wave coming nationally, it is also, I'm putting it out there uh, to watch for, I believe it also is going to hit Illinois. And while mm. it might not be as apparent in the statewide races, these congressional races are more uh, vulnerable to a red wave. Mm -hmm. That's why you also are going to, to, to see Biden here Friday night in more of a closed event. Uh, yeah. Saturday, he'll probably be with some of the congressionals, Underwood and Foster, and then Vice President Harris is here on Sunday. Let's briefly hit a couple more, Alex. I know that we've got these high-profile races that we talk about, but we also have some that aren't getting as much attention, like DuPage County Board Chairman. That's up for grabs. Republican Dan Cronin has held that job since 2010, not running for re-election. Why does this race matter? Well, this race matters because it, it matters for a couple of reasons. But in the uh, Democrat who is running in this race, uh, Illinois State Representative Deb Conroy, uh, she would be the first woman to hold that spot. And, and the Republican in this race, uh, Greg Hart, he has been on the DuPage County Board for about five years, and he wants to uh, get in there and make some change as well. Now, this race is kind of wild to me because I, I started off covering county politics in, like, small areas. I live in Springfield now, so you're thinking, like, Sangamon County Board and even, like, out in Macomb, the McDonough County Board. Yeah. Like, they don't, they don't, they don't even take mileage per diem. So the fact that Greg Hart has <laughs> $1.5 million on hand right now for a county board race – you know, I just haven't been, <laughs> haven't been up here all that's that wild. long. That's kind of wild to me. And uh, Deb Conroy has about eight hundred thousand dollars on hand right now. So, and they're they're out with ads. They're out on uh, TV with a couple of ads, and they have they're both running a couple of positive and a couple of negative ads. And you know, it's it, it's it's a race to watch. It's it's going to be pretty tight. Also, two seats on the state supreme court up for grabs. How's that looking? 
Well, it still remains to be seen, but this is the race that people are talking about because if Republicans win two of these seats, then that's going to shift the ideological makeup of the Supreme Court. Uh, People in Cook County, um, they can vote to District 1 um, is whether uh, Judge Marianne Theiss faces a a retention vote. And I'm so sorry if I mispronounced her name. Uh, Right, but that's different than the two two seats that are up are in suburban. There are seven seats on the state Supreme Court. Three come from uh, Cook County, but in order to not have the Cook County vote dominate it, one is from basically the northern suburbs, one western. Right, exactly. So, and that's different than a, than a retention. Because right, so... If she's... So go on. It, well, in, dist- in District 1, <laughs> yeah. she's going to be... That, that's a retention vote. But in, the, in District 2, the yeah. northern suburbs and then the western suburbs, that's where you have a Democrat... Uh, a Democrat Elizabeth Roqueford and a Republican Mark Curran. He's a former Lake County Sheriff. And District 3, DuPage, Will, Grundy counties and those areas, uh, Mary Kay O'Brien, a former state legislator, and current mm-hmm. Justice Michael Burke. They're running in that race. Back now with more Reset. I'm your host, Sasha Ann Simons. If you're just tuning in, it's our weekly news recap, where we make sense of the top local and state stories from recent days. Before the break, we took a deep dive into next Tuesday's midterm election, but there is much more to get to. 12th Ward Alderman George Cardenas is stepping down from city council at the end of the month. The Jesus Chuy Garcia's flirtation with a second run for mayor appears to be getting more serious. Chicago police say at least 14 people were shot, including three children in the East Garfield Park neighborhood on the west side. Chicago's mayor calling for a statewide ban on what she calls weapons of war after a mass shooting on Halloween night. Our panel today, Chicago Sun-Times Washington Bureau Chief Lynn Sweet, Alex Degman, WBEZ State House reporter, and Carrie Shepard, lead producer of CityCast Chicago, a daily podcast and newsletter about all things Chicago. All right, over to the tragedy that occurred Mm. on Halloween. Police, they're still looking for two suspects who shot 14 people. That includes three children. And this was during a vigil in East Garfield Park. What what else do we know, Carrie? Yeah, on Halloween. Yeah, they were already gathered. Uh, the community, I think that like 11 of them, I think of the 14, are in the same family. They were already gathered to for a vigil, as you said, at uh, California and Polk, I think. And yeah, shots, 14 shot. Another woman, I think, injured when she was hit by a car. Uh, Superintendent Brown, of course, showed up and said, you know, there's a reward for anyone who gives us information, but we don't know anything now. Um, I would suggest everyone read what Tiffany Walden from the tribe wrote about, you know, the joy that we're taking from our kids and what's supposed to be, I don't know, in your neighborhood, but in my neighborhood, kids were trick-or-treating and they Absolutely. on Monday night and we were handing out candy. My kids were trick-or-treating. Yeah. And it wasn't a ton, but she made the point of, you know, when she was growing up in Lawndale, um, she didn't, you know, they didn't, her parents didn't love for her to go out trick-or-treating. And this is just a, this, this perpetual problem of this joy we're taking from kids. Um, it's a really important read. I'm not sure that, you know, and the mayor calling for some sort of ban on assault weapons. Um, yeah, it's it's quite symbolic. I mean, but yeah. the reality is like a lot of those uh, are a lot of like, mag- you know, magazines are already banned in Chicago. But, you know, as we know, guns don't abide by state lines. So, you know, it's quite easy. You know, Stephanie Zimmerman just did this great investigation for the Sun-Times about this, like pop over to Hammond. You're closer to Hammond in parts of the city than you are to other neighborhoods in Chicago. And nobody, 
when she buys this for 40 bucks, nobody, the, the seller's not carding her to see that she lives in Chicago and he's not required to. So I, I applaud the mayor for that, but, um, yeah. I'm not sure how far that's going to go. And we'll dig more into that. But uh, as you mentioned, the community there, Carrie, after the shooting, we talked here on Reset to Yolanda Fields. She's Mm, of this group Breakthrough, uh, a community organization over in Garfield Park. And she said, you know, families are hurting. The the shooting really just highlights this need to reduce violence and, and other needs as well. We know that violence is not an isolated um, phenomena in our communities, Mm -hmm. that it is connected to other things like economics. Um, It is uh, the holistic way that we view our community and the things that um, we need assistance with helping to create a new reality for. By the way, do we know the conditions of the victims at all right now? I do not. I don't have it in front of me. Um, I... I do think that the three-year-old, I believe I read, was in very bad condition, Um, but I would have to pull it up. I I don't know right now. Well, you mentioned the mayor uh, calling for a statewide ban on assault weapons, also switches that turn handguns into machine guns. We've been talking about that this week as the the Sun-Times and WBEZ have done a number of investigations about it. Alex, do you think that we'll see any movement on this anytime soon in Springfield? Well, I think... What you'll find with most state lawmakers is, at least when you talk to them about this, especially in the wake of tragedies like this, they realize that they can only do so much. And because of the way gun laws are kind of, you know, patchwork in this state and this country, there's only so many things they can do. They can, like, chip away at it. And those are things that are kind of in the pipeline, I guess, so to speak. But as far as taking a huge holistic approach, like a one thing is going to fix everything. I I don't know that that's going to happen. So um, we're coming up on veto session here in a couple of weeks. And there are some measures, like, for example, there's one that is still uh, percolating that would um, make it harder for minors who have documented mental health problems from buying guns until later in life, until Mm -hmm. they're 24 instead of 21. So, you know, things like that, that chip away at certain things that people can do. Um, And, you know, some, some communities that are implementing their own bans. But, you know, these are the kinds of things that are work, that are being worked on right now, at least the ones that we know about. Yeah. Um, note here from Edward Tone over on YouTube, who says, uh, we need jobs, not guns. Yeah. Very good point. Which is what your guest was alluding to, right? That yeah. this is not isolated. This is connected to economic development and poverty in specific neighborhoods and attention from the city and funds from the city. Yeah, it was really good to hear from her mm-hmm. on, on Tuesday on the program. So switching gears, we're heading into the final stages of the budget season, Carrie. <laughs> it looks like the budget's going to be approved on Monday. Some aldermen, though, do not seem to be so happy. What's going on? Yeah, I mean, that's usually the case, right? Let's not forget, it's not just the mayor up for re-election in February. Um, It's also aldermen. So committee hearings, budget hearings are a good time for them to grandstand a little about so their constituents see what they're fighting for. Mm -hmm. Um, I saw that, I think it was Greg Pratt in the Trib said that, you know, Matt O'Shea, which represents Mount Greenwood, Southwest Side, which has a lot of cops, firefighters, city workers. It, you know, he's he's upset with the budget, not having enough for hiring new cops. Others will say, wait, the police are getting a bump in, in you know, for the budget. So is that really the problem? Um, and, you know, there's there's other big issues like, you know, next week. Uh, CTA President Dorville Carter is expected to appear before the Transportation Committee, something right. he hasn't done 
even though we've had all these problems of safety and efficiency uh, with the CTA. So we're going to see what aldermen say about that. But I'm sure that the mayor has the votes. She usually does. (laughs) They usually do. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We're going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap with Carrie Shepard from CityCast Chicago, Alex Degman from WBEZ, and Lynn Sweet from the Chicago Sun-Times. Also, if you're watching us on YouTube or Facebook, keep those comments and questions coming. So let's turn to the mayor's race. Um, We've mentioned that enough. (laughs) It's a crowded field, 13 candidates. We may soon have a 14th. Lynn, bring us up to speed. What's going on with Congressman Chewy Garcia? So he is deciding, he will not decide if he gets in the race until after Tuesday's election. A big factor is whether or not the Democrats can keep the House. Because if they don't, that will give more uh, inspiration to him to run for mayor. Now, he will have just been elected to a full two-year term. So if he runs for mayor, he will have nothing to lose. He will still be a congressman, even if he is defeated for a second time he ran. So he paid for a poll. Poll, no surprise, because it was made public, uh, shows that he would be in very good shape if he decided to run. Uh, So... My analysis at this point is Mm -hmm. that he probably will because he has nothing to lose and there may not be another opening. Uh, You know, once an incumbent perhaps wins a second term, it will just become harder. And Lori Lightfoot uh, is there. So a quick thing, you know, there's 13 people, but these are not all equal candidates. They might be equal in their mind. But, I mean, (laughs) Chewy Garcia is a name that people know. Absolutely. Half of these people running, I know that they may think they're very important aldermen and no disrespect or state representatives. They are not well known. Yeah. So when you so talk Garcia, about you think money, will be competitive here then? Oh, of course he is. Yeah. Because of the people there, the ones who have citywide name recognition are Mayor Lightfoot, Chewy mm-hmm. uh, uh, Garcia, and Paul Vallis. Uh, that's why this will be a hard one for the Chicago Teachers Union who put their endorsement already and money, as well as the national AFT, put a million dollars into someone most people have never heard of, county board member Brandon Johnson. These are not people in the news. They're unknown quantities, and they have never, ever been tested in big deal press conferences. Well, tell tell me this, Lynn. There there are eight black candidates. Yes. Political observers are, are talking about how the black vote could be divided. Well, this is a city, though, that is almost that is has uh, it's balkanized in ethnic groups. So uh, you will have divided. If Chewy Garcia gets in, then you could say, uh, you know, how are we going to slice and dice this? Is it the black female vote hmm. uh, is divided with Lorian Alderman Sophia King? So I think I never in, in a case like this, I don't think it should ever be assumed that it was going to be monolithic anyway. Right. Yeah. So uh, we have a few other ways to slice and dice it. But in general, the more candidates out there, the better it is for Lori Lightfoot. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, Garcia gave Rahm Emanuel a run for his money last time. Like Lynn notes, most people don't know their Cook County commissioner like Brandon mm-hmm. Johnson. He's my commissioner. But yeah. And like and to the point of the balkanization, right, you know, you go west of Western, you see fewer Lightfoot signs, you see a lot of Willie Wilson signs, right? I mean, that's how they that's how they track their voters. They they know which neighborhoods to go to. Let's take a question from YouTube. Clay Goodpasture says, 
Why do we have second elections in February for mayor and alderman? Wouldn't the city save money if we voted for local elections at the same time as our state election? What do you think? Well, I could explain why it happens, but I think it doesn't matter. Uh, so. Sure, Lynn has the whole history. Lynn's like, well. So they sat around a table and they decided. We have in the state of Illinois, it was decided that municipal elections should be in odd years and that there should be a separation from the statewide contests. So uh, yeah. we could debate if this is good civic policy or not, but Given that we already have a lot on our plate right now with the even number elections, uh, in terms of our civic life, it might be a plus to separate it out. Yeah, I feel like it would be overwhelming. In many municipalities, not all, in Chicago is one, these contests are run nonpartisan. So in just a quick, quick, quick thing, in Chicago, we have a two-step system for electing a mayor. In February, if no one gets a majority then there is a runoff. So that would be a harder, you know, you could have that all on the ballot now, but you already have a bunch on there. Yeah. So if we added, you know, your alderman or whatever, or in the mayor's race, it would be there. But that is at least why it is. We could have another show maybe on if this is the (laughs) way it should be. (laughs) Should it be this way? (laughs) And would it save money on the next reset? No, I'm kidding. Um, So before we close out city politics here on the recap, the aldermanic exodus continues, Carrie. This week, 12th Ward Alderman George Cardenas said that he's going to step down. What's he best known for? Uh, he's from McKinley Park, Southwest Side. Uh, he would probably tout all the, you know, he's built schools over in McKinley Park and, and back of the yards. I, I haven't covered him closely. I mean, it, we should note that some of the exodus of, you know, the aldermen who are retiring, he actually has another position on the horizon. He is, he is, Ah, he's he's in an, he's in an uncontested race for Cook County Board of Review next week. So this isn't a sudden resignation. We knew this was coming. Um, but it will be the fourth uh, alderman that the mayor, that Mayor Lightfoot will have selected by the end of the year. Obviously, Nicole Lee in Bridgeport, Chinatown, Timmy Knutson in Lincoln Park for Michelle Smith. And then Michael Scott's, um, forgive me, I'm forgetting his sister's first name um, in his ward as he went over to the Board of Ed. Any speculation on who she might uh, appoint for Cardinals? No idea. I have no idea. <laughs> This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons, and we are back with more of our weekly news recap. Before the break, we talked about the mass shooting on Halloween on the city's west side, but we do still have a lot more to get to with our great panel. Joining us is Chicago Sun-Times Washington Bureau Chief Lynn Sweet, Alex Degman, WBEZ Statehouse reporter, and Carrie Shepard, lead producer of CityCast Chicago. We are still live right now on YouTube for those who prefer to watch, and we're still taking your questions and comments in that chat box on the right. All right. Some Abraham Lincoln artifacts. They were pulled out of the Presidential Museum in Springfield this week. Alex, what's going on? So if you've been to the museum at any point in the last 15 years, you've probably seen some of this. We're talking about the bloodstained fan that Mary Todd was carrying the night that her husband was shot, the blood-soaked gloves that he was wearing, one of the cufflinks from his shirt, his walking sticks, a, a whole bunch of things like roughly 1,500 items. They got trucked out of the museum on Monday. Uh, it's It's not clear if they're ever going to come back, and it's not clear what's going to happen to the artifacts right now. So what happened was there's a 15-year agreement to display all of this, but that expired on Monday. And the foundation that purchased all of this called the Taper Collection in 2007 
it's still trying to pay off all the debt that it accrued trying to get all of that. It was uh, it was north of $23 million, I think. Mm-hmm. So at first we didn't know who was responsible for this, but uh, WBEZ's uh, Dave McKinney found out that it was actually Hindman Auctions, uh, the Chicago auction house, that there's no word on whether some of that's going to be auctioned off. It, they just came and moved it. But the ret- the remaining debt that's left on that collection is still around $8 million or so. Wow. And there was an effort uh, some years back to get some state assistance for that to help some back when it was around nine and a half, ten million million. That didn't go anywhere. So now the two entities, they've been, you know, they've been going at it for a while, and now they're separate entities, and the, just the, the bickering continues. What a feud. Uh, let's move over to Bucktown's music venue, The Hideout. It got some negative publicity this week. Yeah. Fill us in, Carrie. Well, I mean, it got some negative publicity in the last couple of weeks, and it, I, you know, made its biggest move in response, I think, to it in that The Hideout, which has been an institution for a long time, run by Katie and Tim Tutton, um, is closing until, they said, the beginning of 2023. So that's, you know, two months, okay. which is right. But still, you know, will affect bartenders, people who work there. Because, you know, people had canceled, some bands and performers had canceled their shows after this Instagram post that went viral by Michael DeVille, who was a programmer there and, and booker, and he really laid out what he said was a very, you know, alleged a very toxic work environment. Mm-hmm. Um, so the hideout says they are going to bring in some HR folks and really investigate how they're, you know, running the place and staff. Um, but yeah, it's bad publicity. And, sure. you know, closing is a is a bad outcome for a lot of people, but many would say it's the necessary outcome. And on a more positive note, uh, fans of the legendary comedy improv IO Theater, that's uh, it's back. They're celebrating its reopening. Tell us about IO Theater, Carrie, and just maybe some of the big names who have performed there or trained there. Oh, over the probably years. all of them, right? Yeah. Amy Poehler probably was there. Mike yeah. Myers. Mike Myers. Tina Fey. Yeah, you know, you always hear about Second City, but IO is kind of the, like, maybe the scrappier little brother or sister. Um, it was in Wrigleyville. People will remember for years. You probably, everyone probably had to go see a friend or friend of a friend in improv at IO. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was run by Char- Sharna Halperin. She has since left. Um, in 2020, there were, you know, also allegations of a, uh, of sort of a racist environment uh, there. They opened a huge theater space over in Goose Island, you know, off Clybourne there. Very, I mean, just like a huge upgrade from their other sort of smaller theater in Wrigleyville. But yeah, they're supposed to be doing shows, I think, now, like this weekend. They were, they're relaunching with new leadership and yeah. uh, what they say is going to be sort of a new slate of programming. Yeah, that's wonderful. They're back. They're open. And uh, about the hideout, we've got some chatter on YouTube saying hopefully it does uh, reopen in the new year, Carrie. Yeah, I think a lot of people would say that, including the people who say they're not going to go back. I think until things are fixed, I think a lot of people really would like the hideout to be around. I'm one of them. Got some work to do first. Yeah, of course. Another art story for you, Carrie. This one is is involving an artist that was posting some controversial flyers around the city. I think Hyde Park, for the most part. What happened there, and and what did the artist have to say about it? Such an odd story. Jamie um, at Black Club, Jamie Nesbitt-Golden, I think, broke this story because she saw what was um, a flyer. You know, it said whites only 
but it, it also had a noose hanging off of it. Yeah, and you know, my friends I know who live around there, and my black friends are, you know, say like that is it. The artist told Jamie it was sort of a marketing stunt to draw attention to a show that she has. She did it in Hyde Park. I guess she did it in Boys Town too. But a lot of people find that extremely traumatic. And, you know, our mutual friend, Ariane Nettles, said, like, think about some of the older black folks who have to walk past that in Hyde Park. Um, She's, I guess, from the Western suburbs. And this this was part of drawing attention to, uh, to her show that's happening in Logan Square. What a way to promote your event. Interesting way to do well, it. She certainly got people talking, that's for sure, because it was the, one of the first things I saw that day on Twitter. I was yeah. Like, what is this? Yeah. This is Reset. I'm Sasha Ann Simons. We are going behind the headlines in the weekly news recap with journalists Lynn Sweet, Alex Degman, and Carrie Shepard. But I would say, sorry, <laughs> <laughs> she didn't give Jamie her name. So I always feel like if you don't give your name. The artist, you, you mean? Yeah, the artist wouldn't give her name to Jamie. So, you know, I there may be some sort of part of her that felt like mm. you know that wasn't maybe the best way to promote the show just or maybe she like goes by a symbol now and she doesn't have a name anymore perhaps who knows perhaps uh we're going to turn to a story that we discussed earlier this week on reset uh, a judge has reduced bail for a pregnant woman who is facing a murder charge this was for killing her boyfriend this essentially means carrie that she won't be giving birth in jail because i mean she's Almost eight due. months pregnant, right? Yeah, yeah. You had you you all talked about this on reset we this did. week, right? Keisha Golden, Keisha uh, Golden, who tragic story. Yeah, who I think is in in jail because she allegedly her the her, it was a boy her boyfriend whom she killed and they had a very violent relationship that had been documented several calls about domestic violence mm-hmm. at their home, um, and she has been released to her her sisters so she doesn't have to give um, birth in prison. And the judge said, you know, she's not a danger to society. And so she should, she should be released. Um, And so there was some sort of exorbitant, you know, bail of like $2 million set and that was reduced. Um, But yeah, I think a lot of the outrage here too, Carrie was, I mean, she had called the police 50 times. 50 times I I read. Just between June and now. Yeah. 50 times. Yeah. Unfortunate. Um, Ending our recap on a positive note, I'm looking at you, Lynn, because a pretty popular author has made a major donation to Northwestern University, your alma mater. Well, so this is the author uh, who who was who got all its money because he authored uh, the game, the book of Game of Thrones, of which the yes, fantastically the massive show, yes, that it, everybody but me watches on it. And I watch it. Me. I never got into it. <laughs> what? No. You, oh, you never and, got into it either. No. Okay. And he he owed and he he did the give back uh, to Medill in giving. I how I. Should have it in front of me. Maybe you do like five million dollars. Oh, I thought it would be more than that. He's made a ton of money. (laughs) No, for for a variety of 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 programs. This is not you know to to deal with uh, writing programs. This isn't covering the news. You know, Medill has. uh, The beauty of Medill is that it produces people who are journalists, but other people who go on to achieve in other areas of writing. And I think he recognizes though that Northwestern is a place to who he owes a debt. Yeah, and. When he had the means, he, he is doing the payback. Yeah, still a good thing. Uh, before we go, I'm, I'm wondering around the room here, what uh, stories this week maybe really struck you that surprised you? Maybe you thought they were underreported, something that we didn't cover today. Anything come to mind? Go ahead, Alex. 
Oh, I was just pointing to somebody else while I thought of something. <laughs> I thought you were saying, Sorry, that, pick that, that, me, that, pick me. That was, that was my signal. Sorry. <laughs> I don't know if it's underreported. I do feel like something, you know, I do want to hear more about, obviously, is I want to hear more from Dorval Carter and NCTA. It's, it's not underreported, I understand, but I mean, it's just reached a breaking point and it's unacceptable. We're a city of our size, geographically our yeah. size, like public transportation is mandatory and- yeah. I would say, as someone who used it for a very long time every day and didn't drive a car, um, the CTA used to be very, very reliable. I don't know if you guys used to take it, 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 but it did. You could really get anywhere in the city on the CTA, so it's unfortunate what's going on now. Have you taken the CTA, Lynn? I grew up taking the CTA. Yeah. I'm a, I mean, I, I take public transportation in Washington. Yeah. I took the commuter train here, uh, I'm, I'm, and then I'm pretty committed to yeah. public transportation, so... Uh, have I, so I, yes, I have taken public transportation. Uh, I could tell you what the subway is like in Washington where I, I do live. Mm-hmm. But I, I think the point is there are some people who have never taken public transportation. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it seems that around the table we're not them. But when yeah. you understand how kind of cool it is to not have to use a car and you have these alternatives, you understand what Carrie's talking the about. The money saving. As long as they work. Yeah. To yeah. make it. To make it work. Yeah. I think all you have to do to look at some of the issues that CTA has with reliability and service is go to a city where that isn't an issue. Um, I went to to Seattle for the first time over the summer, and I didn't need a card, even though I was staying a pretty good distance away from everything that I wanted to do. The buses were clean. They were on time. There were five different modes of transportation from BRTs to light rail to standard electric. It, It was wild dedicated bus lanes can you imagine right it's like whoa right. yes so, i can i i'm from toronto i was gonna say you know, like, yeah. sorry so, and to, to be fair i am taking cta in about an hour to go do my next thing so. well you'll have to report back and tell us whether it arrived on time yeah i don't i don't take it off it enough to complain so yeah. yeah and i love the metro commuter line. yeah 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 love it well we'll have to leave it there another great recap we've been talking to carrie shepherd lead producer of citycast chicago a daily podcast and newsletter chicago sun times washington bureau chief lynn sweet and alex degman state house reporter for wbez thank you all have thanks, a great weekend. thanks yeah you too